0: invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 2 and 3 today. Verse 1 we included in last week's sermon as it kind of rounds out the previous section, but uh, we'll read it again as it is important uh, context to, uh, to the verses that we're going to look at in verses 2 and 3 so let's read this together. Philippians chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved, I entreat Yodia and, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement. And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray again together. Our Heavenly Father, we once again come to you and, and we know that as we come to your word, we need to hear it. We need to believe it. We need to understand it. Father, it's for our good that it is here. It is truth. Your word is truth. It is by your word that we are sanctified. I pray that you would do good work in our hearts now. Give us minds to understand, and I pray that you would exalt yourself, and uh, that you would do this by doing good work in our hearts. And Father, we just ask you for your help now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Christians possess an objective unity in Christ. There's an objective union that is ours, as believers. We are one with Christ, and we are one with one another. Paul says elsewhere, we are members one of another. We are grafted into the same tree of salvation. True believers are brothers and sisters. We possess a unity, therefore, that is not actually our own doing. It is ours because we believe. God unites us to him through faith in Christ and to one another as well. And this, of course, this objective unity is foundational to any talk of Christian unity, any talk of pursuing Christian unity or living that unity out. But, of course, it is true that Christians, though born again, though made new, though given a new heart, we still sin, we still wrestle with the flesh. And therefore, the experience of Christian unity is something we must fight to maintain, It is something that we are to grow up in, uh, to live as one, even as we are already one in Christ, and fight for this we must. Uh, To this we are called as believers. This is part of our living as citizens of heaven here now upon this earth. The reality, of course, is that conflict does arise amongst the Lord's people. If you are seeking a perfect church, you are early. You're too early. As we've seen, perfection comes at the end when Christ returns. And so in the meantime, conflicts do come. We do wrestle with sin. We do wrestle with the flesh. These conflicts can come over all kinds of different things. They can be for different reasons. They can be over something like personality differences. They can be over doctrinal matters. They can be over something that was said or done or something that was not said or not done. They can be over genuine wrongs that are committed and they can also be over misunderstandings. And all of this can be discouraging to us. But we ought not really, we ought not to be surprised when conflict arises within the church, even amongst mature believers, as we will see, the reality is the Bible is not silent about this. It doesn't paint a picture for us of the church in this life, in this age, being perfect. Sometimes we maybe have made that mistake ourselves, or you've heard others have this over-idealized vision of what they think the early church was like. It was near to perfection, and now it's not. It's not. And uh, so we want to return to that earliest version of the church. But of course, when we read the New Testament, we see there were all kinds of issues and all kinds of trials in churches from the very get-go. So the Bible gives us lots of instructions about these matters, and this is one of those places. This is one of those passages. Now, remember the things we've talked about with this church in Philippi as we've been going through this letter. This church was very dear to Paul. This was a good church. And yet it was not above such conflicts. And Paul has been addressing throughout this letter the matter of unity and humility all throughout. And in many ways he's been leading up to this point in the letter. Um, But if you just for a moment flip back to chapter 1 in verse 27. I want to read a few verses. Paul wrote this. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So they have, there's exhortations there. It's uh, kind of piled up on being united, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. And again, the context of, that, of those verses and that exhortation at the end of chapter 1 is in the acknowledgement of trials and suffering. He calls the church to stand and fight for the faith together as one man. I think it's fair to say that when in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulty, there is all the more opportunity for conflict to arise. And also, I think it's fair to say that when a church is facing suffering, persecution, various t- types of suffering, it is all the more crucial to seek unity and to stand as one. In our text today shows us that although brothers and sisters in the Lord sometimes have serious disagreements with each other, we are nevertheless called to work it out and to agree in the Lord. And So the first point of the outline for today's sermon, the church is called to agree in the Lord and labor together for the sake of the gospel. The church is called to agree in the Lord and labor together for the sake of the gospel. So again, having already said a lot that would lay the foundation of, of unity throughout this letter, Paul now addresses a rift explicitly, just head on. He writes in verse 2 I entreat Eurya and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Rather boldly, I would say, Paul addresses two women and exhorts them to unity. And he does this by naming them. Now just think for a moment how you would feel if this was your name listed here. A a letter to the church and the Apostle Paul, what's he going to say? And there's your name, but not in the like Epaphroditus is the man kind of way, but this entreaty to agree in the Lord. It, it, It might strike us as somewhat shocking. I think probably it should because I don't imagine any of us would like to be singled out in this way. And yet as Paul does this, this is not harsh, this is not rude, this is not any of those things. Paul still does this, even though this kind of shocks the system. He does this with great care and actually honors these women and the church as a whole as he nevertheless names them. So couple of ways he he does this. He honors the women in the church. First, uh, verse 1, of course, we see this reveals Paul's love for the people. His love for the church, his concern for them. He's not doing this with animus, as if this is his chance to to really call these people out that he's got a beef with. This church is his joy, he says, his beloved. Remember, he heaps up these loving terms in verse 1. They're his crown, he states. So, as Paul is running and racing towards the last day, racing towards uh, perfection, to the day he would be presented before the Lord, uh, perfect, sanctified, as God completes his work in him, he's not just doing that on his own and for his own sake, but he's laboring and desiring to bring others along with him, as many as he possibly can, including these Philippians. He's writing this for their good, ultimately. He further honors these women by, and the church by revealing, I mean, as he addresses them by name, I think what this reveals to us is that these ladies in this church have the maturity to be able to handle this. I think if these were really immature, like just really immature believers, these two ladies and the church as a whole uh, is really weak, I don't, I'm guessing he probably would not handle it quite in this way. But by addressing them by name, Paul shows that they can handle this. The church can handle such a a rebuke. And I think this is all the more clear as he gets into the description of these women. So they probably have the maturity to handle this kind of a correction from Paul. Thirdly, we see here, Paul doesn't take a side as he addresses these women. This verb, I entreat, is given twice here, which is really not... Grammatically, it's not necessary. He could just say, I entreat Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. But as many commentators point out, the way he frames, writes it here by uh, repeating this entreaty shows that he equally addresses both women. It's not, I entreat Judea first and foremost and, and, and Syntyche somewhat. He entreats them both equally. Whatever the issue was, precisely which we'll explore more in a moment paul doesn't take a side here but rather he just addresses them both equally and he calls them to unity to agree further paul honors them by speaking highly of their past service to the lord and treating them and addressing them as sisters He mentions that these women labored side by side with me in the gospel, he says, and that their names are written in the book of life along with these others. Paul is lovingly admonishing two friends of his, two beloved Christian sisters to work through their disagreement. Again, we don't know the precise nature of the disagreement, though that hasn't stopped people from trying to figure it out and speculating. But there are a few general things that I think we can be pretty confident of as we think about this disagreement and what the issue was. I, don't, I think it's pretty clear from the way Paul handles this that neither of these women are espousing some form of heresy. When that's the case, Paul addresses that in a very different manner. And we've already seen that when he calls out the dogs and the mutilators of the flesh. That's a different Uh, way of addressing it, let's say. You think about other places like in Galatians, he's very firm, very direct, um, somewhat harsh even with those false teachers. But that's not how he addresses this here. At the same time, though, the rift was public. It was public enough that it warranted a public response in this letter. Again, it is doubtful Paul would have done this if it wasn't generally known that these two women were at odds. And so it seems it was public enough that this was known by the church, and yet, in all likelihood, it hadn't yet erupted into major division. But it had the potential to, right? This, this small flame could become a roaring fire, and Paul is addressing it here. And the admonition, again, is for these ladies to agree in the Lord. And this means to think the same things we've seen this language and this call to unity, to think the same things, to have the same mind already in this book. So if you go back to chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says there, complete my joy by being of the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind. Again, this means to think the same thing, possess the same mindset. This is what he's calling them to. And then again in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way, think these things. And there, Paul was saying that mature believers are the ones who share his mind about the life of sanctification. So the exhortation to agree in the Lord, then, is a call to have a unity of mind. A unity of conviction and a unity of purpose from that conviction. It is a call in this context to work out disagreements, to work through sin, so that they might stand as one, be of one mind. And that they might do this, as he says, in the Lord. Unity in and for the sake of Christ and his gospel. This is what he's calling them to. These ladies that he addresses here, they are, they were, I guess they still are, they are one in Christ He says their names are written in the book of life. He's confident they're the Lord's. They're genuine believers. And so they are to live in light of that. And then in in the middle of verse 3, he continues on and he he paints a positive picture. as As he mentions their past service of these two women. These are women who labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest. and This is what it is that the church was to be focused on, this laboring side by side. And this was precisely what was being hampered in this division that had arisen. So as Paul talks about their past laboring and striving with him, that's, that's, that was good. That was, the, that was excellent. That was worthy of praise. And that's what he's desiring they return to. Some people conclude from these words that these ladies were fellow pastors when Paul says that they labored side by side with me in the gospel. Um, not only would that conclusion contradict what Paul says explicitly elsewhere about this matter in places like 1 Timothy 2.12, um, but that's not a necessary conclusion of, from this text. Again, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 27, which we read earlier, Paul, addressing the whole church, exhorts the church to live lives worthy of the gospel so that he might hear, even though he's apart from them, that they are with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The, that phrase in English, it's striving side by side, is the same Greek word that is translated in chapter 4, verse 2 as labored side by side. Striving in chapter 2, they translate the ESV as labored in, chap- in chapter 4. Striving is really the better translation because this comes from a military metaphor. Taken from either it's the gladiatorial arena or the battlefield. It's striving side by side. It's soldiering together. And it is something back in chapter 1 which the entire church is called to. The entire church he wanted to hear was striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It is not just for pastors. The church as a whole is called to take up arms, spiritual arms together and fight for the faith, to defend the truth of the gospel, to defend the church from its attacks, to take the gospel out in evangelism and missions, to support one another in the midst of the church, within the church through showing mercy to one another. And of course, this includes to Put to rest internal quarrels. This is a whole church endeavor to strive side by side in this way. And there are various gifts that the different members of the body bring to accomplish this. While there's much we don't know about Judia and Syntyche, it would seem that they were prominent women within the church. Perhaps, if you remember back in Acts 16, where the church in Philippi is established, there we we read of, of Lydia. She was a wealthy woman, and she met with other ladies for prayer, and Paul shared the gospel with them, and Lydia and her family are saved, baptized, the church is formed. Paul ends up in jail, Philippian jailer, you remember all of that. Perhaps, along with Lydia, these two women mentioned here, were early converts and early members of the church. Perhaps, like Lydia, they were women of means who faithfully supported financially Paul's work, the church, or maybe in another way through hosting the church in their homes. Perhaps these ladies were tenacious and bold in their personal evangelism as well. We don't know the details, but we know that they were obviously mature and strong women for Paul to... Have such high praise of their faithfulness in times past. They had proven themselves faithful, unified, sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul would have them renew. Just as the Philippians were, we are called to unity in the Lord. A unity of conviction and purpose. That would see us striving together, side by side... For the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That the purity of the gospel message might be preserved. So that the Lord, Lord's people might be built up in that faith. That unbelievers might come to believe. All so that Christ might be glorified. And we must know that we are not above conflicts. Whether petty or great, significant, Conflicts that could hinder us and move us off course. And again, these can come in all types. And we should not be shocked when conflict or difficulty arises. We should not be offended if someone has a concern with something that I did, you or I did. someone comes to you to address something. So this should not be surprising to us, but neither should we simply allow these things while it's going to happen. That doesn't mean we should just let them all fester either. Again, if we think about all that Paul has said about humility and counting others more significant than ourselves, this is all the more crucial as we consider this matter of unity. Again, I think as Paul is insinuating here, this disruption and this disagreement between these two members of the church was moving them off mission, resulting in being less effective, certainly less appealing even. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only and true and ultimate hope in a lost and dying world. You know, we live in a you. you and I know this, we live in a society right now that cannot consistently even tell you what a woman is. Cannot really answer that question. This is how confused people are. This is how rebellious our society is. Again, as I think about the last couple of years, even and all the craziness we've seen, consider that for many, many years, we have indeed been, as a country murdering the most helpless individuals in our midst, preborn babies. And not only have we done that, it is a sacred right of our medical community. Nothing in the last couple of years ought to surprise us when we consider that. And we remember that. It's as bad as it sounds. This is the world we live in. Every man, every woman, every child has sinned against God and will face His judgment. And the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord who has purchased sinners Purchase sinners from death, satisfying God's holy and just wrath. It's just wrath for our sins, for our violations of God's law. And so God calls all people everywhere to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to find forgiveness of sins, to be redeemed, to be forgiven. To have God's wrath against you satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ. God is gracious. And this this is the remarkable news. And again, with all of the upsetting things that we see all around us, and all of our desires to correct those things and to speak out against them, let us also be sure we do not forget that we have a message that is good news. There's a lot of bad news we can point to that's going on all around us. And it's not wrong to do so. There's a time and a place for that. But we are also people who do know the answer, who do have good news for people the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great commission is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that Christ has commanded. This is our mission. The reality is when disagreement arises and we start to fight with one another within the church, the, the, the mission gets hindered. And so this is part of Satan's design and it is something we need to be aware of and guarded against. Our task is to preserve this message of good news, to make this pronouncement of good news, and for those who believe we, we, we build one another up in that faith. The gospel is the only eternal hope, and it is worth setting aside ourselves to, to do all that we can to focus and to fight together in this. So the church is called, you are called, to agree in the Lord, and to labor, strive together for the sake of the gospel. Secondly, the church is called to help one another agree in the Lord and labor together. The church is called to help one another agree in the Lord and labor together. So after exhorting these two women to be of one mind, Paul says in verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women When, when issues arise, disagreements in the church, various types of conflict, I think there's two ditches we can fall into. On the one hand, we can be a busybody where we meddle and we pry into other people's affairs and we try to insert ourselves into matters that really don't concern you. That's one possible ditch. But on the other hand, There's the error of of just completely withdrawing from these things altogether. The idea that religion, Christianity, is simply a private matter and a private affair. It's the idea that what I do is between me and the Lord and you don't have anything to do with it. And what you do, it's between you and the Lord and I have nothing to do with it. This is not how the scriptures talk about the church. We see quite plainly here and elsewhere, that we're in this together and we need one another. There are different gifts, there's different members of the body. You know these this analogy in scripture of the church? It's there for a reason. And there are occasions when brothers and sisters need each other. In fact, it's 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 more often than we not than than not. But there are also times when we need one another in order to help us resolve issues. We see this in, the, in, in matters of private sin and private offense, a place like Matthew 18. The passage there outlines steps to take. Jesus taught us to resolve issues with another brother or sister in the church who sins against you. Most would understand that text, I think rightly, to be really um, dealing with, with private offenses. This is not a public matter necessarily, but I know this thing is going on. What do I do? How do we handle this? Insert Matthew 18. There we read in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So clearly in matters of private sin and offense, there are steps to follow to deal with the matter, beginning with private confrontation and then moving outward if it is not resolved. In other passages, we see Paul dealing with sins that are already very publicly known. Uh, 1 Corinthians, for example, chapter 5 there we have a case of a very publicly known sin, very immoral relationship in the church. And not only is this public knowledge that, it's, that it happened, but it's public knowledge that these people are unrepentant about. It. And Paul just straight up there just deals with it publicly as a public matter, and he tells the church to expel the immoral brother. Again, the sin and and the unrepentance were were established facts. This was not in question. So so they were already well aware of this. And so they were at the final stages of this process there to remove this brother from the church. But here in Philippians chapter 2, it's a little different. He doesn't, as I said, Paul doesn't take sides here. So I think it's very possible, likely even, that this disagreement they're having is over an issue that isn't even a matter of, of sin. But that the way this disagreement is playing out and persisting, it is becoming a matter of sin. Perhaps a matter of pride. Unwilling to yield. I don't think it's... it's just just as, as maybe an example of, of something like this that could happen. I could see there arising a disagreement. We've just come through a a meeting Wednesday. We were talking about a church budget. This did not happen Wednesday, by the way, but I could see there being disagreement over how much money the church ought to give, a church ought to give to missions. One brother might say 10% of the church budget is, is lots. That's a great thing. That's, Another might say, we can do 20%. And imagine what that extra 8, 10, 15,000, depending on the budget, imagine what that could do in the hands of missionaries. How helpful that could be. And so that brother looks at the 10% brother and says, you know, we're, we're, we're misspending and, and that's weak, what you want to do. We should have a higher priority on missions and, and so on. Well, how do, who's right? Well, so it's not obvious. Which number, which percentage is the biblical percentage that we ought to have, that the church ought to have? Both might have reasonable cases to be made. And I can see Paul saying to such people, work it out. Come to an agreement in the Lord on such an issue. You can see how even that two sides could become proud about it. So I think likely something, that's just an example of, of something like this, that is not a clear and obvious sinful matter, but where nevertheless disagreement can be present and fester and grow and become a major issue. So whatever, again, specifically it was, this true companion is addressed here to step in, to help, to mediate, to figure out the issues, to help them work through it to help them repent if and where that's needed. And obviously if one or both sides becomes clearly entrenched in sin in sin and unrepentant about it, then obviously at some point that would need to move to the other steps that are outlined in Matthew 18. But Paul here treats them as sisters in Christ. He's not jumping to judgment, jumping to conclusion. And it seems clear here that he's very hopeful that this will get worked out. And as Paul addresses this true companion, there's different opinions you might be surprised to hear about who exactly this true companion is. The word true refers to someone who is a legitimate and valid member of a family. So this person is a true brother, a true yoke fellow, co-laborer, A true companion. Different suggestions have been made as to this individual's identity. Some think it's Epaphroditus, who would be the letter carrier and was mentioned back in chapter 2. Others say Timothy, some Luke. Some even argue it's Paul's wife. I have no idea where that comes from, but it's out there. Others would say it's just an unnamed leader within the church. And finally, some suggest that this is a reference to the church itself, to the church as a whole. There are a few other places where Paul refers to the church, addresses the church in this second person singular like this, so that's very possible. However, I would say it's more likely that it's an individual that would be obvious to the church itself. That when Paul addresses this true companion, the Philippians would know precisely who he's talking about. Perhaps it was somebody very close to both of the women. Maybe it's an elder in the church. Regardless, though, we see here the need for help. And Paul calls this brother in to do that. They hadn't been able to resolve this matter yet. And so there was need for some help doing so. Again, the Christian life is not a solitary one. There are times where we need help. In, in all kinds of things. We need prayer. We need help understanding things. We need counsel in something. We need uh, someone to hear us out. Sometimes we need help working through issues with another brother or sister. If you have or fi- ever find yourself in the midst of ongoing strife, disagreements with brothers and sisters, you are called to agreement in the Lord. And if you ever do need help working things out, there are brothers and sisters here who will help. This is not something just for elders, but certainly we would do everything we could to help you. And then just before moving on to the final point here, one way we can foster this and, and, and help one another uh, walk in unity and agree in the Lord, is just being careful with our tongues. You Consider what the Bible says about the tongue, the book of James, I think of the book of Proverbs. There are so many ways for us to run our mouths or say something, even accidentally. We just, something just came out. We weren't even trying and you know this. You've, you understand this. But to be guarded, to be careful, to watch our tongues, certainly to be on guard against gossip or speaking ill, of others in such a way that we might cause another person to think ill of another brother or sister. Proverbs 16:28 says that a, a whisperer separates close friends. So the church is called to help one another agree in the Lord. We're, we're to agree in the Lord, and we are to help one another do so. Thirdly, A church striving for unity only makes sense. A church striving for unity only makes sense. What I mean is it is fitting. Given our objective unity that we have in Christ Jesus, given our common destiny that we're headed toward, this common salvation, it only makes sense. It is fitting that we would be united now and strive to have an even greater experience of Christian unity and a greater love for one another. Again, even as I think about this text and, and as I preach it now, this is not to, to be even, I'm not even preaching this as a rebuke to anybody here. But there's, there's always room to grow in this regard. As we've seen, Paul's been outlining this common salvation that believers have, the, the, the resurrection we're going to experience together throughout chapter 3. And he, he draws attention to all of this again here. When he says, help these women who have labored, strived, side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. The phrase that begins with, who have labored, this relative clause, it functions here like a causal clause. That is, it is giving reasons why it is appropriate for these ladies to agree in the Lord and for this true companion to help them to agree in the Lord. It is right because these are two women who have strived side by side with Paul in the gospel along with this man named Clement who we don't know anything more really about and others he mentions, these fellow workers. Maybe he's referring here to the the early core to this church Again, we don't know for sure who he has in mind, but the point is these women are precious women who, along with these others he mentions here, have their names written in the book of life, and so they ought to agree in the Lord, and you, true companion, ought to help them get there, help them do this. Paul is confident here that he's dealing with true sisters in Christ Jesus. He is confident that this can be worked out and that it is entirely appropriate to agree in the Lord because these are two Christians with whom Paul has labored with. Their names are written in the book of life, he says. The book of life is referred to in a number of places, mostly in the book of Revelation. It is tied to the doctrine of election God's knowledge of those who are His. In Revelation 20, verse 12, it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. God's, this metaphor of a book is, God's record is precise. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life... He was thrown into the lake of fire. And back in Revelation seventeen eight, it says that the book was written from the foundation of the world. It is the Lord's redeemed who appear in this book. And Paul is remarkably confident here that Iodia and Syntyche, along with these others, Clement and the others that he mentions here, that their names are written in the book of life. He has seen the the fruit. He has seen enough that he is confident of this. Again, disagreements that require great effort to work it out happen even amongst the Lord's people, even amongst mature believers. It can happen. This is here for our instruction. And of course, if it is true that our brothers and sisters have are saved by the same God as you, names written in the book of life, then this is great motivation to unite our hearts and minds now, in the present, for the sake of Christ and his gospel. If our names are written in the book of life, we will spend eternity together, having been glorified and perfected then it logically follows that we should do all that we can even now to agree in the Lord in the present. It's similar thinking to what Paul has outlined as he is looking ahead to the resurrection from the dead, the time when he will be perfect and he says I'm I'm headed there now. That's my goal. I'm striving to 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 be as holy as I can now because Christ has made me his own. It's 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 logical. If that's where this is headed, We're striving for this even now. If we will be fully in agreement and the fullest experience of unity one day when the Lord Jesus returns and ushers in, consummates his kingdom, then we ought to strive for this now. And I would suggest that just as we have hope that we will indeed, God will continue to sanctify us and complete the work that he begins in us, that as we know he will do that on the last day, we have hope as we battle our sin even here and now, then this also should provide us hope that we can work through issues with brothers and sisters. Striving for unity only makes sense. Seeing no need for working things out does not make sense. Now When we think about this issue of working through matters and so on, lots of questions might arise. And we don't have time to address a ton of them now. We might wonder, does this mean that we must agree on every single jot and tittle about every single matter? And I don't think that's what is meant by this. Though that would be great. I think that's the ideal. I think that's where we're headed. But I would understand that there should be agreement, certainly in the core doctrines of the faith. It would often be referred to as first-tier matters. Things like justification by grace through faith alone. The doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, these sorts of matters. And then whatever disagreements might exist on other matters should not be such that we fight against each other instead of working together and striving side by side together. There should not be animosity toward one another, but love for one another, as defined biblically, even as we read In 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, hopes all things. Even, I would suggest, denominational differences. Though significant, can be amiable if this mindset is followed. And again, even where differences might occur, we ought to be able to discuss those things with brotherly affection and love for one another, still striving within the church to even be of one mind in those areas where even secondary or third-tier issues might, might exist, differences might exist. And of course, we know that when it comes to working out issues, working through matters, you can really only ensure that you yourself engage in an honest, brotherly, and humble way with others. Sadly, the reality is others may not. Paul knows this. The scriptures are, are, are not idealistic, as if we're just, you know, as, as we've already said and seen, that we're just going to arrive here and there's never going to be conflict or disagreement. Paul knows divisions occur. In fact, he even says in 1 Corinthians 11 that they're necessary at times. And, and, and I've preached on that. A while ago now, um, but it, it's online, just talking about when, when division becomes necessary. Paul understands that there will be false converts, disingenuous souls who refuse to work things out, who refuse to repent, and or refuse to believe the clear teachings of scriptures. And there may come a time where there's necessarily division. But for those who are truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought not to be this way. And this is what he's entreating Judea and Sintiki to overcome their difference and agree in the Lord, to be of the same mind. The reality is there will be many points at which you, I, all of us can let anger and resentment set in if we're looking for offense. And we must not give in to this, or even where there's legitimate offense, we are called to agreement in the Lord. To striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. Something that's greater than you and me. We are, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, we are one in Christ now. And we will be in complete and perfect agreement on the last day. And then for eternity. And so let us seek In light of that, single-mindedness, even now, as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission and love one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess again our sinfulness. And we praise you and thank you that there is good news. The Lord Jesus has died to save sinners. Father, I pray that you would grow us in unity and in love for one another. Grow us in humility. Father, that we might learn more of and experience more of the mind of Christ to consider others more significant than ourselves. Father, I pray that you would make us people who are quick to forgive and to put sin away. Father, we thank you for the the unity that we have enjoyed over the years. And we just pray that you would build that even further, that you'd bring many more yet into this. And Father, even as we think of, of the coming months and our desire to, to plant and launch in Regina, Father, I pray that as that becomes a, an independent church, that you would likewise knit their hearts together and many others to them as well. Father, we pray that you would do this for the sake of your own glory. I pray that you'd help us to think that way, to desire your name to be great. Forgive us, for we are selfish. Father, we thank you for your mercies. We thank you for the righteousness that is ours by faith in Christ. And it is here that we stand, and it is because of It is because we come in the name of Jesus that we can come boldly. So Father, we praise you. We're so thankful for your goodness and graciousness and patience with us. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.